0: In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, flying today as a duo rather than a trio with Max Linsky because... We got some news. We have news. Evan is a father. Uh, Congratulations to Evan, uh, to his wife, and to their newborn daughter, Azalea. We're allowed to say that on the air, right? I'm calling her Azalea. Max is calling her Zaley. Uh, Congratulations to them all. Hopefully they are listening at home or at the hospital. We're going to be um, flying without Evan for a few weeks, and he will be back at some point, which I don't know when. I don't know how Evan convinced the CEO of the Atavist to uh, <laughs> have such a generous paternity policy. Uh, this week on the show, actually, is a Atavist author. Uh, James Vrini, who won the National Magazine Award for his story, Eleven Runes, this year. <laughs> it's a good week for Evan to not be here. Yes. Because <laughs> we could really uh, have embarrassed him talking about yes, how great that story was. He does not like when we talk about uh, his uh, awards show run. Um, but uh, James is really interesting. Uh, his writing is great. You can read that story online now. And do we have any sponsors today? Tiny Letter. From the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. They have supported us from the start, and we appreciate it. Here's Aaron and James Verini. Welcome, James Farini. Thank you for having me. We kind of put this one together uh, last second because I heard you were in town from Nairobi. What, uh, what, what brought you here? I had to receive the Polk Award. I guess I didn't have to. Congratulations!
2: (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That was a douchey way to begin. Um, I uh, I wanted to receive the Polk Award, and I was closing um, a New Yorker piece that just ran last week about Uh, about uh, pirates, Somali pirates, Somali piracy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Is it strange uh, for you, like you know, filing for places like the New Yorker and living uh, in in Africa? Do you like? Do you have contact with the mother base? Does it put you in a different place as a reporter when you're not like in New York?
2: Well, on, on this assignment, um, the the Pirates one, it actually wasn't an assignment. I didn't know if it was going to be a good story until I talked to the crew members. And in order to do that, I had to go to Asia where they live to talk to them. Their English was was decent, but not good enough to interview them, you know, over the phone or on Skype. So I didn't know who this story was going to be for, and then I went to India and Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and interviewed uh, the crew members, um, these guys who were in captivity in Somalia for three and a half years, and realized, wow, this is actually a really good story. Did all the reporting and then pitched it to uh, to my editor at the New Yorker, Andrew Morantz. Um, but usually I don't like to do that, you know, like most reporters don't, because you got to. You got to fund. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. like,
1: so let's, I mean, I'm, I want to talk about this story, but let, let's talk about the economics yeah. of it before we even talk about what it's about. So, like, what kind of an expenditure is that for you to take a story on um, of that complexity without knowing someone's going to pick up the tab?
2: At first, not bad, because the way I found out about it was from a guy in Nairobi. Um, this guy, John Steed, who appears in the story, uh, who's this retired uh, British Army colonel who works at the United Nations, he lives in Nairobi. He was telling me about it when these guys were still in captivity in Somalia, and he was in regular touch with them. Um, in fact, sometimes I get over his place, and, and the, the Somali negotiator would actually call him on a cell phone and put the captives on. Uh, but so at first it was no, it was no expense at all. Cause I would just check in with John Steed. I live in Nairobi anyway. Then when I realized I wanted to go interview these guys, uh, when you're, when you're working in South Asia or Asia, you can keep reporting pretty cheap in, you know, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka are very inexpensive, inexpensive places to travel. So it wasn't uh, a huge out of pocket burden, you know, but obviously for a freelance reporter, Any out of pocket burden is is a is something of a burden.
1: Yeah. I'm interested in this specific story because Somalian piracy has been covered pretty heavily. I mean, from like the reported level up to Hollywood, you know, has made movies about it. Yes. And uh, this story sort of starts off in a sort of a typical fashion and then it just it keeps going and going how like how how far into this story when you was it when you started reporting it
2: well so i first met john steed this guy who works at the united nations who runs this tiny thing called the uh hostage support program it's a two-man operation he tries to help um captive seamen and others get out of somalia people whose, whose ships have been hijacked or people who have been kidnapped. He tries uh, to get in touch with them, to get them medical care, uh, to get their families in touch with them, and he tries to basically bargain with the pirates and raise money to get them out. So I first met John in the summer of 2013, when the Albedo had just sank, and that was what uh, fully. That was almost three years after it had been hijacked. It was hijacked in November of 2010. So two and a half years after that it sank I met John uh, through a friend and then I I went and talked with him at his apartment which doubles as his office and um and was talking to him about it and of course at that time you know it wasn't clear at all what was going to happen to these guys they were still in captivity and would be in captivity for another year but he was telling me everything this crew had been through and you know, and he was telling me about the sinking and and um four of the crewmen died during the sinking, eleven survived i believe and w- one time while John and I were talking, the Somali negotiator, a dude named Abdi, uh, who's quite a famous negotiator in the in the galmudic area of Somalia, he called John. They were in regular touch uh, this guy abdi is 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 pretty amenable as Somali pilot negotiators go. He called John um, to discuss, you know, what was going on, whether any ransom money was being raised. He then uh, Abdi put uh, Aman Kumar, who ended up being the protagonist of my story, put him on the phone, and Aman was in. This was this was just after the ship had sank, and these guys are in a in a rather you know parlous psychological state. So I could hear Aman kind of screaming on the other end of the phone. I couldn't understand what he was saying. His Indian accent was quite thick. Um, but I, I heard him screaming and I just there, you know, when John received this phone call and I could hear a Somali negotiator and a crewman, um, on the other end of the phone, I knew this might turn into a good story. Subsequently, John had a, an awful coronary and almost died, but he's a trooper. And, he, and a couple of weeks after getting, you know, this heart surgery, he got back on the case and a year l la- we kept in touch, spoke every couple of months. And a year later in June of 2014, John called and said they escaped. These guys, these guys escaped from <laughs> Somalia, which had never really been done before. Not without like a serious military rescue anyway. So then I said, all right, this is, I think there's a story here, but I, I couldn't be sure until I could go interview the crewmen and see what kind of guys they were and how much they remembered and what they had to say and the the first guy I interviewed who ended up being the centerpiece of the story is Aman Kumar, who amazingly i didn 't know this when I first heard that phone call uh, sitting in john 's office, but Aman had learned English in captivity he had he didn't he spoke a couple of phrases of English when he got on board the albedo two weeks before it was hijacked. He not only learned English um while in captivity but also learned Somali so that he could, you know, communicate with the pirates, sort of win concessions for the crew and eventually kind of talk them out of the place.
1: So, when you have a story like that, you know, okay, these guys escaped. This is a good story. How do you how do you start thinking about like how you want to tell a story like that? There's so many different perspectives a story yeah. like that it could be. Is it opportunistic in that this is the guy who had the best stories of it yeah. or were you thinking okay, I want to tell this from the crew's perspective? Like I'm interested in like how you start boiling a story down like yeah. that.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean the the first thing is the the form that you saw it in in the New Yorker which ran it a bit under 8,000 words. A lot of the credit for how tight and fast paced that was is due to Andrew Morantz, my editor, who's, who's awesome, who's amazing, and he saw, I filed 15,000 words, and he saw an
1: 8,000-word story in it. Um, what, what were a lot of, just because I'm curious and just yeah. read the story, like what were the other 7,000 words all about?
2: I, in retrospect, <laughs> needless digressions, <laughs> yeah. but at the time when you're doing a story and you're so in love with these characters, you think everything is important. Right. You You lose perspective. There was a long, long, uh, <laughs> I won't call it a digression, let's call it a subplot about um, the wife, the Pakistani wife of the captain and all, everything she she went through to get the Pakistani crew members released, including sort of brilliantly deceiving the owner of the ship, who was a, a, a morally um, uh, questionable guy. There were any number of things, but anyway, Andrew, Andrew saw the
1: shorter, better story in it. Is this something... That sort of evolved for you as a writer. Like when you when you start like looking at a story now, yeah. You know, b- once you've got your research, do you just write out and and when you're kind of done telling the story, that's how long it is. Are you yeah. sort of are you? I'm I'm interested in how much you're thinking about right. the container that fits around the story. Like I this. think
2: my guess would be that I'm fairly typical. I I start thinking about how the story will look. As soon as um, I start interviewing the subjects of the story, so as soon as I arrived in Jawali in India and started interviewing Aman about his experience, which he'd recounted in in a very, um, an amazingly well remembered, you know, chronological fashion, I started structuring the story. This 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 story is, I mean, it's obvious, it's 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 linear, you know, it's a chronological narrative. Um, I also like scenes, scenes that I actually get to witness. I think I saw you reading that Slate the uh, yeah the piece about the the uh, no, Central African Republic exactly. So that was you know with that i got to um witness these amazing scenes in central african republic these scenes of violence
1: this and is the, a story that you did for uh, slate um yeah. about conflicts between well conflicts between just about everyone in the central african republic <laughs> well it was it was
2: specifically about two brothers who had been split apart by the civil war one had joined one faction of the civil war and the other had joined the other and I got to st- tell the story of these two brothers. It was nice, you just got two central characters right they 'd sort of defy the st- the typical protagonist antagonist thing you know they're they 're both antagonists they 're both protagonists. they love one another, but they hate one another. They are fighting against one another, but they 're brothers um, so I got to structure it around these scenes that I witnessed, that are very short scenes, and then put the brothers around that. So that was very nice. With the with the pirate story, I didn't do that. I had three and a half years worth of really good material, yeah, and had to find a way to compress it, which which is where a great editor comes in. You know, uh, what a great editor should be doing is is compressing things um, and finding out. How to cut out you know the boring parts essentially. Um, although in the case of this pirate story, what I, w- I wanted to try to convey to the reader at least a little bit in the middle was this sense of hopelessness and just sheer boredom. Well, there's
1: a point in the middle where you're like they that this was the like third anniversary of their captivity or something like that, and yeah. I was like, what? I thought yeah. this was like they'd been there for like a month and a half. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a, a jaw-dropping idea that you're sort of hearing the the nature of their sort of day-to-day life and you're and you th- you think of of a kidnapping being yeah. in months yeah. not in, in years I want to go back actually to something you said about sort of how you um approach these subjects mm-hmm. and 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 the knowledge you get from them so when you're dealing with subjects some of these guys are sailors from Bangladesh you have two brothers who were part of militias in Central African Republic these are all places that are Pretty alien to your own life experience, I would guess.
2: Well, not any longer. I mean, I've been living in Africa now for two and a half years, and I was reporting a fair amount internationally before that.
1: Fair fair game. But I guess what I mean is... Um, these are not people that you can ident- instantly identify. Like, w- you know, what kind of a high school did this person <laughs> go to? You know, these aren't like these aren't Americans, basically. No, most of them did go to boarding school, but no. I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no and so, you know, you're you're being thrust into these disparate situations mm-hmm. in different in dis- with disparate languages, disparate cultures, and yes. you're being asked to learn about the character of a person and and I'm interested in what what do you study when you're doing that if you have a week with someone what are you trying to get what are the techniques you have for trying to immerse yourself in their world
2: well I think unfortunately you, you barely can you know there's you can get to know a person well but only so well until you get to know their culture as you suggest and their family and you can't do that in a week or a month or or even a year. I've lived in Kenya now for two and a half years, and I wouldn't presume to say that I know Kenyan culture right. um, at all. And I, I think this is a shortcoming. You know, this is a this isn't necessary shortcoming of journalism. There's vastly more misunderstanding than there is understanding always. You know, there's with this story, as with any other, and it doesn't matter how much time I spend in a place if you know someone from bangladesh reads about the bangladeshi dude i wrote about they would probably t- say that i didn't understand this guy at all
1: or the somalian pirates <laughs> would be like that is not what oh, we're well, about-
2: Somal- i mean somalia is a it, somalia is a, a, a really good example because it's such um, it is so alien to our experience somalia uh is in many ways you know much more a a 19th century country than it is a 20th century country or hell even much older than that you know it's it's largely ruled by clans and sub-clans and sub clans and their militias um And it's a brutal, brutal place, as you can gather from the way they treated these sailors. Journalists in Africa, including African journalists, often talk about the fact, and this is not exclusive to Africa. You hear this in other places, too, Latin America, Asia, wherever there's conflict. They'll often say, you know, life matters less to these guys. Life matters less to Somalis. I don't know if it's okay for me to say that because I don't know any Somalis that well. I've been to Somalia but not for very long and um but i there there's certainly truth to that that is probably the most alien and jarring thing about working in africa and living in africa is um life is much cheaper much much cheaper and more to the point death is always very close to you we're we're very removed from death here we don't see much death and, even, and when someone dies here, you know, someone can die at 89 of, of, uh, in their sleep and it's called a tragedy and, you know, on a, an obituary page somewhere. But um, we're sort of removed from death and, and the motivations behind violent death here in Africa. Um, I find that I am often exposed to it. And I guess that's part of the reason that I wanted to live there.
1: You know, when you see something like that, like wow, the the price of life here is very different, and even within Africa, you know, the, I'm assuming that the price of life in Kenya is different than the prices of life in Somalia and the price of life in Central African Republic. How do you how do you dra- dramatize that into a story? Like, mm. how does that that kind of a feeling, which isn't necessarily part of the research to any specific story, but is the backdrop to yeah. many of these stories, like? How do you communicate the sort of subtext of and this is taking place in this country in Africa to to a re- to an American reader?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know that you can necessarily. Um, I you know I try to relate these people's experiences, but I wouldn't flatter myself that I know what it feels like to be them. I don't. I can always leave Africa and yeah. I live you know in a an apartment building in Nairobi. I don't know what it feels like to be in constant danger of violent death or to be live in a country where you're not expected to live past the age of 45. i know that one reason that i wanted to move there and one reason that i that i want to write about conflict and terrorism and international crime is that i want to understand what it feels like and i would like the reader to understand try to understand what that feels like i guess for the you know the same reasons that any writer goes to to some far off place. You want to experience something different, something more to the point, something more extreme. You know, you want to see, um, experience at its extremities and life at its extremities. I like to go to places and write about places where not only not only is death ever present, especially violent death, but w- Places where people have no options, where the, their governments do not care about them or indeed have outright contempt for them, where neighbors don't argue about loud music or, you know, or like leaving a stroller in front of a, an apartment door, but they, they argue about whether you're Christian or, or Muslim or, or, what, or what tribe you're from. And that argument can end with a machete or with an AK-47. And indeed, that argument can become a national argument and persist for years or decades.
1: Hey, I'm gonna pause things there for a second because I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Trunk Club. Uh, I personally don't enjoy the shopping experience immensely. I haven't set foot in a mall for a couple of years. I tend to buy most of my clothes online, but as a result, my wardrobe can get a bit stale and you can kind of feel it when your clothes are uh, starting to get repetitious. So when you want some new clothes, I'd recommend you check out Trunk Club. Uh, I did. Here's what you do. You go online. You tell them a little bit about what you like to wear. They assign you a personal stylist. That person mails you a trunk of clothes. You keep the ones you like. Send back the rest. No subscriptions. No ongoing fees. The shipping's free. It's a very low-risk opportunity. They actually have some showrooms. I went in there with uh, Max. I ended up going home with a very nice pair of pants. Um, they now know about what I like to wear, so whenever I want a refresh for a spring wardrobe, say, I can just get a trunk delivered. Uh, I really like this service. Um, you can get it yourself by going to trunkclub.com slash longform. You'll be upgrading your wardrobe and supporting this show. Thank you, Trunk Club. Here I am back with James Farini. You're talking to people, and you're reading newspapers, yeah. and, and probably reading like I don't know think tank pieces and that kind of stuff. Right. Like, how do you how do you sort of weight those in your mind? Like, is a is a first person tells you something heavier than a New York Times story about Congo that you've read? I would always,
2: as a journalist, I think you always need to trust primary sources, for lack of a better term, first. Especially if you like to write scenes, as I do, and you're trying to cover something that's contemporary and topical. I wouldn't rely on an, on the New York Times or any other newspaper for my information. I want to get the information myself. But as any writer would tell you, working in a place where you don't speak the native language um, and working in places that don't have a, a very robust native um, tradition of journalism have different means of information sharing, which in Congo is basically rumor. You know, it's called... Um, it's—I forget the the funny French term for it. It's basically the radio of the the radio of the street. You know, it's, it's rumors. What people tell one another. Um, a lot of people there are illiterate. They don't uh, mostly don't read newspapers. If they get news at all, it's from the radio. So the way information um, is developed and shared and embellished there is a lot different from here. You know, we rely. You and I um, have very specific ideas about what constitutes the truth in a story. Those ideas are not shared by much of the world. For a lot of the world, truth is a much more um, kind of emotional valuation. Although in Congo and everywhere else, I always trust the people I talk to first, I have to necessarily distrust a lot of what they say as well, or I have to sort of filter, try to filter out what I believe uh, is the truth and this is the case everywhere I report uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, where um, where you, one often finds that um, storytelling and information mingle a lot. So, like, recently I was uh, reporting in, in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan, and I was speaking to a, a commander with the uh, SPLA North, the rebel group there, and we were discussing a recent battle. I won't remember the numbers specifically, but... You know, the battle had just taken place. And as per usual, his his guys had done remarkably well against a much larger force, the the Sudanese government force. And I said, uh, well, so, you know, how many guys are in your unit? And he's like, oh, you know, a hundred, give or take. And I said, well, how many how many enemy forces were you facing? Ten thousand. <laughs> Ten thousand. I said, oh, wow, that's of bad odds. So how many of your guys died? And he's like, you yeah, know, one or two. And I said, "Well, how many enemies did you kill? He's like five thousand thirty one they yeah. always it's always a huge number, and they always know down to the precise five thousand thirty one yeah, how do you know that? Well, I spoke to their mothers <laughs> <laughs> so in Africa you as in as in reporting anywhere else um in the world, I think it's always best to uh to trust the people you talk to um and not newspapers and not news sources um but you also have to find you have to also have to figure out a way to compare their stories and to and to filter them i'll say that i've had to do that more reporting there than i have had to do it in the developing world um where because you know because we have um so much media um and because we think about this distinction between truth and fiction so much people you speak to are much more used to thinking in those terms and oftentimes i will dis- discuss an event um, with a source at you know in some war zone um in africa and i'll they'll tell me a very detailed story and then i will say well did you actually see it and they'll say no i heard about it but the person i heard about it from i trust you know, they're a cousin or they're my neighbor. So I know that it happened. I know that it happened this way. So then you got to, of course, try to go find the the cousin or the neighbor um, if you can.
1: You did a story uh, for The Atavist, which you won the um, As Me Feature Writing Award for that's about a couple in Afghanistan. It's a really um, rich and beautiful story that I, I almost feel like, a, like the sort of Tagline. Uh, there's not a way I can describe it in like a sentence that's going to make people like no. jump out and want to read it. But it's it's way it, too ponderous. For yeah, that. it's like an almost like a non nonfiction novella of sorts and. But but what struck me is that it really brings to life this, this expatriate world in Kabul from a different time period. And I'm interested in in what you're sort of, when there isn't a historical record where you can look at archival footage and newspapers, like yeah. how do you start bringing a world like that to life? Because I'm guessing most of those people are dead now, the people who are in that story. Yeah, I mean, I mean almost all
2: of them. Well, I got lucky with that one because Nancy herself is a font of, of information and she. She, uh, unfortunately she seems to often be dwelling in her own memory uh, and not the present day. So she was, you know, she would just talk, uh, at length and, and was a wonderful subject in that she talked in complete paragraphs and in whole stories. I think she very much knew what a journalist needed. Uh, she was kind of a journalist herself. She wrote travel books and articles. Also I got lucky in that she's an archivist. The periods of Afghan history that I was referring to and writing about she had collected materials about those periods and written about those periods herself and her husband uh, or late husband Louis Dupree was regarded as the best or the most accomplished western archaeologist to ever work in Afghanistan so in, with that story it was where where historical reconstruction was concerned it was almost an embarrassment of riches um, I had all of Louis' w- books um, and I had all of Nancy's work and then I had Nancy herself. And then I traveled to, um, I went to Duke and to Harvard to look at Louis's uh, papers and his own archives and found all this marvelous stuff that I never knew existed. And I'm sure Nancy would have never have mentioned if I hadn't found it, including my, my, the best find was a, um, Louis, like a short memoir of what happened in 79 when he was detained by the new Afghan communist regime for a week, and and questioned, and watch, and you know, he he was never tortured himself, but he was watching people get tortured. And in his personal papers in Duke, I found this manuscript. It was probably seventy pages. He had dictated it all to Nancy as soon as he'd gotten, as soon as he'd been released, and they had been kicked out of Afghanistan and sent to Peshawar, in Pakistan he he and Nancy had sat down and he had dictated this whole experience of being incarcerated and she'd printed it out and put it in with his personal papers and then Duke got all of his personal papers that was one of those these just amazing finds that you get you know that you get every once every few years this uh, just a, an invaluable document i think we actually linked to it in the story
1: what attracted you initially to that story because it's not a it's not an easy pitch, right? I mean, you're kind of like, I want to write no, about. It was
2: turned down by a lot of magazines.
1: <laughs> I want to write about a uh, couple who were who lived through these turbulent times in Kabul and, and did a lot of archaeology. It doesn't it doesn't have a neat magazine hook to it, particularly like. You know, uh, if we're going to do like one Afghanistan story this year, yeah. that, that seems like a, a, t- a tough yeah. one.
2: I In 2002, I saw a production of uh, Tony Kushner's Homebody, Kabul, the play um, in L.A. And the first act of that play is a monologue by a woman. It, it, it's one of the most amazing hours of theater you'll ever see. And it was clear to me from the way this woman was talking somehow that it was based on a real woman. It had, this had to be a real woman. Somehow the depth of um, feeling and the and the wit and the uh, very bitter wit, I thought this must be based on somebody real. And I eventually contacted Tony Kushner and found out that in fact it was based on Nancy Dupree. He he had been, I think, at the NYU library doing research on Afghanistan way before anybody was thinking about Afghanistan in America and um, found a book of hers and, and became intrigued by her and wrote this whole play sort of based on her. Later I saw an article, I think I'd forgotten about her, um, and I saw an article in the Financial Times in like 2009 or eight. And it was about her and her and and her archive, this archive of Afghan historical material she she had been compiling for years, and about this library that she was planning on open uh, opening at the University of Kabul. And I kept the article. You know, this is back when I used to keep like a big folder of possible ideas, clippings mostly from papers and magazines and and, and printouts from the internet and i it, it it just always had stuck with me and then i a couple of years later i pulled it out and i researched her i did a clip search and then i got in touch with her and 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 we spoke over the phone and i started pitching that story in 2010 and then i moved to africa in 2012, I started pitching in 2010. Nobody was interested, really. The New Yorker, um, my editor at the t- time, Nick Thompson, he really liked the idea, and and, um, and it, but it was turned down there and turned down in a lot of other places. And then when the activists started, I knew it would be Evans' kind of story, and I just could not get it out of my mind. And I, I it was one of the things I just knew I had to go do. I guess occasionally you just feel that way.
1: So I'm curious as to um What your life was like before you went to Africa. What drove you out of this country?
2: I think my life was like, you know... Half the people that sit in this chair probably. I was a freelance magazine writer
1: living in Brooklyn. <laughs> and was that is that what you did like from college on? Like, what what brought you originally no, to
2: writing? No, I out of college, I briefly interned at a Comedy Central show. If you recall, the Upright Citizens Brigade used to have a TV show. Oh yeah, Central.
1: I, I, I was a I was a I was, was a good, fan of that show. It was pretty show. funny show,
2: and I quickly realized that I was not going to be promoted from you know production assistant to writer. <laughs> so, I Was that
1: your aspiration when you started the gig? I
2: guess. I guess it was. I think I thought I wanted to write for television. I wanted I knew I wanted to write funny things. And it's very difficult to write funny things. And you have to be funnier than me to do it. So, I quit that job and I started applying for newspaper jobs and this was in 2000. There were new new newspapers starting. Imagine that. New newspapers were starting up. And the old ones were doing quite well. You know, remember, there was a time when there were all manner of good newspapers in this country to choose from. And all these new magazines were starting up. So I applied for uh, jobs at various papers and and uh, on n- online things. This is when, like, Inside had started and these, you know, the first crop of Salon Slate... Uh, I I got a job at a a business newspaper called The Daily Deal, and then quickly moved from there to the New York Observer during the heyday of Peter Kaplan. I really wanted to write for The Observer I had since, since college, and I would do anything they wanted me to. So they had an opening on the business desk, they needed a business reporter, and I happened to be working at a business newspaper. I didn't know anything about business, I pretended to. And uh, I was hired as a business reporter there, and so I was covering you know covering Wall Street and that kind of crap. I mean looking back pretty pretty dreadfully boring stuff. And then from there to the l a Times, and I started working as a freelance magazine journalist in two thousand five. And the first story that got attention was um an article about MySpace, if you remember that. I remember, yeah, that, <laughs> that
1: was right after Murdoch bought exactly. MySpace.
2: It yeah. was right. I think he was. He even bought it when I was working on the article. Uh, what an amazing relic, you know? Yeah, two, It was early. It was published in early two thousand six.
1: I feel like I feel like the title actually says everything about stories. Will success spoil <laughs> MySpace? <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> and the answer is yes. In fact, it'll ruin it, and it wasn't that successful to begin with. And then two thousand. 7 i became a staff writer at portfolio if you if you remember that uh, that giant $100 million dollar bonfire masquerading as a magazine
1: yeah I, was say, I think uh, didn't uh, this is probably rumor not fact but that Michael Lewis that was the highest uh, uh, word rate ever was Michael Lewis for portfolio that was
2: the rumor that was the rumor and I, I don't know if that was calculated after the fact you I know have because asked they I
1: had Michael Lewis on I could have I could have resolved this one You should have asked
2: him I'm sure he would have been candid about that yeah, if you calculated my contract after the fact, because they, they killed a story and then cut down the stories, I was making something obscene, like nine dollars a word. That that wasn't the contract, but that's what it ended up. I ended up getting paid per word. Yeah, if I recall, I think the first the co- first cover story was by Tom Wolfe. Yeah, the whole premise was that we were in another gilded age, right? Yeah. And that it had to be it had to be covered with the sort of with the asperity and the acridness that you know vanity fair was covering the worlds of um celebrity and media that someone had to cover the business world that way and the premise was right we were and are in another gilded age but it's not a gilded age for media that, yes. that is decidedly ungilded yeah, it's only a, a it's it's a it's another gilded age for private equities uh,
1: and and tech people and apparently um you know even though we're in like a golden age for bankers they don't need cover they don't need journalistic <laughs> coverage to go with that
2: that was always a big problem about reporting on businesses these guys had no reason to talk to me
1: yeah it, rightly you know, so basically they,
2: they didn't they didn't want to sell their stories and they didn't want um, they didn't want to get if they didn't want to like get back at their former employers or or explain to you why they had invented like a certain industry they had no reason to talk to you when they were smart enough not to.
1: Well, I mean, what did you start thinking? Like, once your eyes, like, none of these head funds want a story done about them, we're, but you're getting $9 a word. <laughs> like, well,
2: no. They, I mean, the, the nice thing at Portfolio was they basically let me do what I wanted, which was not really, which was only peripher, peripherally business-related. So my first article for them... Um, was about uh, was about the oil and gas industry in Russia, about Gazprom essentially. And I went to this island Sakhalin, which is now Russian, was formerly Japanese. It's the northernmost island in the Japanese island chain, um, where the, at the time what was the largest oil and gas project ever was going on. It was it belonged to Gazprom at the time. It had been, they'd basically the Russian state had basically just taken it away from Shell. They said, "We're rich now, and this is ours." So I did that, and I did. Um, The story from Portfolio that I'm more proud of was a story about uh, gun trafficking on the U.S.-Mexico border that came out in 2008. And that was about the fact that uh, more or less all the firearms that are used in the Mexican drug wars come from the U.S. We consume most of the drugs they're manufacturing. We also send them most of the the guns they
1: use to kill each other. So you made this jump from doing newspaper stuff to doing these uh, magazine stories. Was that a learning curve to figure this stuff out for you?
2: Well, it was certainly a learning curve to learn what constituted a real magazine story, or a real narrative story as to what constitutes a newspaper story. You know, I, I, I think I heard David Remnick once put it, you know, there are subjects and there are stories. And the question he always asks writers, I think is the way he put it is, what makes this a story and not a subject? And if you're writing for newspapers, you can just write about a subject because um, you can do that. In a thousand words or five hundred words, that gets really boring after two right. after fifteen hundred words, so a lot of the learning curve was learning what constitutes a story and 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 that usually consists of finding characters to be at the center of that story. I think another learning curve for a, a magazine journalist or just like for um a fiction writer is learning what really interests you. You know, being honest with yourself about what really interests you, not what you think will sell, not what you think will get a commission, but what really concerns you and interests you in the world. And I realized when I was writing for newspapers, uh, when I was writing for the Los Angeles Times, I was covering arts and culture in Los Angeles. I found that interesting, but it didn't move me and it didn't concern me. The things that concerned me and moved me
1: were uh, grimmer, frankly. Do you do you find that the things that you that interest you uh, align with the things that interest an audience, or are they at odds? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess there's no way of gauging
2: that, is there? You, you would one would like to think that if a magazine commissions it, it must align with their audience to some degree. Although I would say the magazines that are the best are the magazines that trust their own instincts enough to not worry too much about what they think their audiences uh, want, um, but I don't know. I mean, I try. I often write about topical things, you know, conflicts that are going on at the moment. So I would like to think yes, but I don't. I don't know. Judging by how few comments, you know, the articles I do get, get com- compared to co- you know the comments about like pets or yeah. or celebrities or sports,
1: I, I'm I think no. I think they don't care much, frankly. When you take the case of Uh, gun trafficking along the U.S.-Mexican border. If you're interested in that, that's an interest of yours, is your job then to find a human story through which to tell it? To sort of zoom out further in the Remnick example you just gave, does subject come before story, or does story come before subject when you're interested in in something? It
2: can go either way. The case with Nancy Dupree, I, I fell in love with her as a subject um, before I was really in love with the idea about writing uh, about Afghanistan as a place, with a lot of stories, I think the subject comes first looking back at, at looking back at stories I did earlier in my magazine writing career I've now been doing this for about uh, just under ten years i'm really I'm really ashamed that I didn't find better subjects to be at the center of the stories. Uh, you know that 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 gun trafficking piece really could have benefited from um, someone at the center of it. It had a bunch of characters who only appeared very briefly. The really good people, you know, the the really the born uh, the born magazine writers and the born narrative uh, writers, and they know that from the get go. They know. They know that they have to find the right people to make the story. It took me a long time to realize that I'm a pretty slow learner.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, do you consider yourself like a, a non-natural at, at your job?
2: I don't think I'm a natural writer. Uh, I think I'm a pretty crappy writer, to be honest. Um, and I, and I, I am not a natural reporter. I am naturally annoying and persistent. Um, so that, I guess, translates into good reporting. But it, it, it took a long time to figure out what constitutes thorough reporting and, and what not just thorough, but um, going down the right alleyways. You know, it took me a long time to figure out what, kind of, what kinds of people I should be seeking out to tell a certain story and what I should be asking them and how much time I should be spending with them. So, certain people are just born with that. You know, I mean, Luke Mogelson has written only a handful of stories, and I would say he may be the best literary journalist of my generation. From his first story, he just knew exactly what he was doing. It's kind of insane. It took me a solid five years of magazine writing to figure to figure out what I should be doing.
1: What was that learning process like? I mean, did you go back and look at your old stories and be like, "Fuck, I should have done this," or was it yeah, like each each time, sort of making the same each, mistakes?
2: Each time you each time you do it and you get a little bit better and you remember what you did wrong the time before. I think you also you your interests uh, develop. So you find on a you find from one story to another that you just want to learn more. You you realize that on the previous story you didn't learn enough about that subject, you didn't learn as much as you wanted to, or you didn't spend enough time with that person. I think part of it is is just kind of growing up. You know, I, de- I think ideally uh, becoming an adult, you take life more seriously, um, and you take your experiences more seriously, and you want to get more out of your experiences. So I suppose in a sense becoming a better writer mimics um, maturing or becoming an adult. I think realizing, you know, uh, realizing that you're going to die and that you only have so many experiences left and that you really need to get the most out of them and really learn as much as you can about other people. I try to go back and read my stuff a lot to see what I did wrong. Uh, and to learn from it. And occasionally I'll print out old stories and mark them up. I I usually cannot bear to read my old stories, even stuff that's published, you know, just last year. I often cannot, I, I feel like it's, you know, could have, I could have done so much better. I miss this. I miss that. I should have asked this person, you know, this person should have been the center of this scene and not this person. Oftentimes I just um, find myself hitting myself when I read
1: my old stuff. <laughs> now you're living in Nairobi, do you feel more comfortable, you know, when you have to go fly two hours somewhere in Africa to do a story? Do you feel like you have a sort of a day-to-day understanding of what's happening in Africa built up that contributes to to each story you write?
2: Well, I don't think you really understand any story until you arrive in the place and speak to the people involved in it. Um, And even then, you know... um, I think the my understanding of the places I write about is is pretty minimal. You know, you the more you do it and the and certainly the more you live in these places, the more you come to know what to expect. You the more you understand that these conflicts often uh, derive from the same things, which are predictable things. Uh you know, in in Africa, uh, so much of it has to do with simple economics and and deprivation. A lot of it has to do with um, religion and a lot of it has to do with ethnicity. Those three things are always at the roots of these problems and these conflicts together in some proportion to one another. Living in Africa, I can see those things firsthand right. every day Yeah, and, and, and talk a lot to people who know a lot more about them than I do, it's, and it's certainly less jarring to arrive in you know, in Boko Haram land or in Eastern Congo or in Somalia from Kenya than it is to arrive in that place from Brooklyn. What,
1: what made you pick Nairobi when you decided you wanted to leave? There
2: aren't that many uh, appealing cities to live in in sub-Saharan Africa. There, there are plenty of cities, um, but a lot of them aren't terribly livable. A lot of them have pretty crappy airports. And at the time, um, I, I wanted to cover more conflict. You know, Nairobi was an hour's flight from you know, four different wars. Yeah, I knew that there were a lot of journalists based there. I knew that th- there was a big international community, um, like you know, an intellectual scene. And I and I, it was kind of out of a hat.
1: Did you know anyone in that scene, or you just knew it was no,
2: there? No, no. I got some contacts from you know some journalists who were living there, and and, and got in touch and asked. Uh, but no, I I went pretty pretty uninitiated. What had happened was I had applied for a fellowship um, to go to Latin America and report. um, And I had been turned down for that. But by the time I was turned down, I was so enamored with the idea of living abroad and living abroad in a place where I really wanted to cover what was going on. I had been to Mexico and Honduras a bunch to cover the drug and gang wars. Um, And I wanted to continue covering that story, those stories. So I I was really enamored with the idea of moving to a place, a conflict-ridden place, where I could really learn about it for years. And East Africa, sadly for East Africa, uh, was another such place, you know, uh, conflict-riddled, but also a place where you could live and learn about the conflicts without having to constantly be in the middle of them. Um, And then it turned out as soon as, you know, pretty much when I moved there, the, all these other conflagrations started breaking out uh, around Africa. So soon after I moved there, National Geographic gave me the assignment to write about Boko, write about Boko Haram. So so just a few months after moving to Kenya, I went and lived in northern Nigeria for a month to write about Boko Haram.
1: I mean, did you find what you came for in in Nairobi? Like, I think a lot of people, like our listeners, have yeah. a certain fantasy of, of doing something like this, and. I mean, I certainly caution anyone against moving to conflict zones as sort of a general rule, but you know, when, a you, when you think about, okay, I'm going to move somewhere, it's a good good airport hub, there's a community of writers, Is did, did that fantasy exist when you got there?
2: Yes, Nairobi has delivered on my fantasies. Yeah. As with anything else, it is what you make of it. You know, there are, there are a lot of freelance writers living in Nairobi, um who who don't get out of Nairobi that much or not as much as they'd like. I mean, part of it is this: the depredations of freelance writing. A lot of these people don't make enough money to travel to the places that they want to go or editors won't hire them to do that if they're not staff writers. You know, editors are rightfully wary of sending freelancers to conflict zones, which is part of the reason, you know, we're getting so little coverage from the Mideast now. Um, you know, no editors want to send writers, staff or freelance to... Iraq or Syria, understandably. I've had the good fortune to be paid enough by magazines and to have enough money, you know, sort of sitting around from good years to be able to go to the places I want to go to, to write the stories that I want to write um, and spend as much time in these places as I want to. Not many journalists have that luxury. Once you get there, it's a lot easier because in fact, it's really cheap to live in Bangui and report you know i lived in i lived in i did the the love and ruin on spec, and I lived in Kabul. I think I paid thirty bucks a night for a guest house, and I got the a miles flight to Kabul, so it was actually a really cheap uh, story to report if you've got you can you can go do it with not much money. You know the real challenge is deciding to go do it. I suppose.
1: Right. And now that you've now that you've built this, I mean, do you have like a social life in in Nairobi? Like, I'm I'm <laughs> curious, like how this stuff works. It's a huge city. I yeah. don't know. There's what 200 freelancers probably living in. Oh, who knows? I mean, I mean
2: yeah. God, I don't know how one would calculate. But <laughs> like,
1: I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious t- as to to what what's that like outside of the reporting part of it.
2: I will be uh, entirely candid with you, Aaron. I have. I have next to no social or personal life, or, or I'm sad to tell you, much sadder to tell you, romantic life in Nairobi. By
1: choice or by... Uh...
2: Well, I, that's, a, that's yeah, uh, largely somewhat by choice and I think somewhat by circumstance. I just like to work. I now love the stories that I get to do so much that I, it's much more interesting to me to be at home researching or writing or reading Than it is to be out having, you know, beers at some place. Part of it is also by choice. I'm just a very reclusive person and I do prefer the company of books to people oftentimes. There's a lot of social fun to be had in Nairobi. I just seem to be sequestering myself from Do it not for some reason.
1: Go to Nairobi and think you're gonna party with James Marini. It's <laughs> not gonna happen. He's reading.
2: I can send you to nice people in bars, but I won't be drinking with you myself. yeah,
1: okay. noted. so now that you've built up a certain expertise in you know being in being based in Nairobi, how, where you know how you fly different places, how you report, mm. are you locked in like Okay, I got a competitive advantage in Africa now. I'm I'm here. Or or is or is that same sort of like, hey, I could go somewhere and kind of like is there a wanderlust that comes with that or do you have a lot of advantage is by staying in Africa?
2: I, I hesitate to say this out loud because I don't want more, you know, competition coming. But it is a great advantage to be there. It's a great advantage to actually be there, um, to be able to propose the stories from the place where you actually live not Fort Greene but you know but Kenya editors like that and they 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 like that uh that, that you've lived there and you you understand the place a bit more i guess i've been doing this long enough that i would feel comfortable going anywhere i would feel i'd feel confident that i could go anywhere and find stories i would be really interested in but but to answer your question more pointedly, I'm astounded that more uh, writers aren't moving to Africa, whether it be Kenya or Nigeria or Johannesburg. There's just so much going on there. There's so many stories that aren't being told. It's such an it's such a fascinating part of the world where the the past and the present and the future are constantly colliding with one another. Often violently colliding, often colliding with, uh, you know, with equanimity. Um, I'm, I'm amazed that more people don't um, don't go there and try to write about this place. Thank you very
1: much, James Verini
2: Thank you, my friend. Look nice forward to, to uh,
1: partying with you in uh, Nairobi uh, soon. <laughs> That was the Long Form podcast. Uh, thanks to James Verini for coming in on a rare trip uh, to New York from his home, Nairobi. Uh, thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss Berman, who really did quite a bit of work on this episode. Thank you, Jenna. Thanks to my co hosts, Max linsky and Evan Ratliff. This show is produced by Longform and The Atavist. You can get all of the Atavist stories online. You can go to longform.org to see article recommendations from around the web and if you enjoy them maybe pick up our ios app it's totally free we'll be back next week
0: why do you run why does anyone i always thought that runners loved running and that's not the case most runners hate running (laughs) but they choose to do it